Okay, well, welcome one and all to the Access of Easy Salon number 39, recording this on March the 4th, 2021. I have Charles Hugh Smith on Tsunami Watch in Hawaii. I have Jesse Hirsch at probably minus 50 degrees, and uh, I'm here in Etobicoke where it's a nice balmy two degrees centigrade. Feels like summer because it's Canada. It's time for the Access of Easy podcast. I mean, do you ever notice that prophets rarely have the problem of being right? And usually when you talk about the future, it's so far away that it doesn't arrive. And yet it feels in our case as the types of things that we talked about only recently are already coming to pass without there being any grace period between our dystopian fears and their seeming arrival. But perhaps I'm being hyperbolic. Not so much. I mean, I have a my favorite my favorite expression, which I think was coined by me, is that eventually always comes sooner than expected. So, <laughs> well, Jesse, you're I, I, in my mind, you're the prophet who's um, predicted uh, that everything we talk about as being in the future is already here, <laughs> and it's just a matter of scale. Yeah, that oh, that's William just Gitt. it. Go ahead. Oh, just William Gibson's favorite famous line, the future is already here. It's just unevenly distributed. Right. Just like wealth, which introduces yeah. the topic that we were going to talk about that we didn't have time last time, which was Mark's interest in hyperinflation and, and, and the impact of a massively distorted financial system on the real world because that's that's really my interest is it's all well and good to talk about abstractions but it's like what is this gonna what impact is this gonna have on people the nation state the network state well and, and i think you know tied to hyperinflation is the general psychology you know that that predates either a massive collapse or just you know, massive volatility or, or massive manic activity. And I think we saw glimpses of that in terms of the GameStop and the whole stonks craze. Yeah. But I, I think we're, we're, we're seeing it not just in terms of market activity, but cryptocurrency activity and even crypto art and NFT, the non-fungible tokens. Because the fact that virtual real estate is experiencing a boom is for me signs of a bubble if there if there weren't so many already but maybe we're using yesterday's metaphor of the bubble for today's uh uh schizophrenic activity in terms of the seemingly ludicrous valuations and ludicrous speculation that we're seeing in in any possible area everything just seems i mean i've been saying for weeks well no actually i've been saying for years and if you listen to my wife i've been saying for the entire time we've been together that everything seems like toppy and and blow off top and 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 i even switched my thinking a few weeks ago to the the idea that there will never be a drop in stock market values because the Fed and the central banks are going to inflate and we're going to get a crack up boom instead. But everything still felt so crazy off the, like just parabolic, the, the NFTs that you're talking about that I just thought this, this really, there has to at the very least be a kind of like wake up implosion, which could be in process now. I mean, things are like suddenly those things like the ARK ETF and the Tesla, they're just not reacting to buy the dip. You know, BTFD seems to be on pause, at least for the moment. <sighs> Maybe this is going to, but, you know, last, I mean, I know this isn't a financial show and we're not like mad money, but it's still last March's drop, the fastest 30% drop in history, in recorded history of the markets. And it was gone within a month. Like if you blinked, you missed. And will it happen the same way today? I think a lot of people now expect it to, ha to happen that way today. because And that's that sort of Pavlonian conditioning the Fed put. The central banks will kick the can, print money. And, and then again, I was reading The Dying of the Money for a couple of weeks now. And it just, it all rings so true to the 1920s era. 
Uh, and somebody else and to was be saying, clear, what what you're saying is that there's a general psychology, a general perception that a crash is impossible, and that yes. if there is a, a dip, that that dip is temporary, and that that markets are going to keep going up. Which, to your point, is ludicrous, right? And and defies logic. And even more to my point, could be correct because that's where you start talking about high inflation. That's where you start talking about hyperinflation. Even even some notable deflationists, like market commentators, who have been deflate, you know, saying inflation is not a possibility for thirty or forty years. They've been saying this. I'm thinking of two people in particular: Russell Napier and uh, Lacey Hunt have been saying for thirty or forty years that people who, who are worried about inflation are wrong, and they had all their reasons why. And these guys have been correct for thirty or forty years. Well, Russell Napier turned from deflation to inflation last August, last summer. Uh, he said, I, I am now in the inflation camp because the market dynamics have changed and the way the, the way the governments are responding and policy has changed and now we're going to have inflation. And Lacey Hunt, still a deflationist on paper, but he laid out in some podcasts I've listened to, he laid out the conditions that would turn him into an inflationist. And a lot of those conditions were in the early innings of that. So... It, it, it just seems like well, and, unavoidable. And I mean, well, and to your point about the the self-fulfilling prophecy of psychology, right? That once you have enough people believing in something, it doesn't matter how absurd that thing is. If enough people believe in it, it will happen, right? That's sort of the, the, the trick. And here, the example I want to give, and then, then let's have Charles sort of bail us out here, is real estate. Because when the pandemic started... You know, pre-pandemic, I was already like Canadian real estate is ludicrous, right? The prices that people, the prices that Canadians are paying for Canadian real estate makes absolutely no sense. You know, there, there was a general perception that it's because Canadians weren't the ones paying the prices, right? That, for example, Chinese capital was buying up Vancouver, Middle Eastern capital was buying up Toronto, and that it was speculative, that people were investing in, in Canadian real estate as a hedge, as a kind of stable place for them to, to save their funds. And while there may still be some truth to that, what the pandemic has done is everyone is at home thinking about their home and thinking, I want a bigger home. So all of a sudden, real estate has become sort of a focal point for people's hopes and dreams. And we've seen an even larger increase in real estate prices, especially in relation to incomes and what people are able to afford. Part of that, to your point, Mark, is low interest rates. So people are taking on more debt and they're taking on larger mortgages. But at the same time, I remember when at the start of the pandemic, I was getting all these Google alerts for blogs saying it's a bubble. Real estate is going to burst. We're all doomed. And all of that has gone away. And now all I'm seeing is the opposite, a kind of bullish approach to real estate, which to me makes no sense because nothing has actually changed other than people's perception of the future with the idea being that everyone is putting their money back into real estate. Again, even though it, it makes no sense to me. Sorry, go ahead. I'll let I'll let Charles in in one sec, but I will just say it makes perfect sense if you think that the governments of the world over are destroying the currency. Then it makes perfect sense. It's like I'll t- and our CTO at Easy is from Serbia, and I asked him, "Were you alive during the? It was still Yugoslavia. Were you alive during the hyperinflation?" And he's like, "Of course, I can't forget that. My mom coming home on a Monday night with her pay parcel and having to rush right out to buy it because the money was worthless by by Tuesday noon." And um, yeah, well, I, I've got a couple of points just off of what you guys have been saying. One is, um, I I think that people are anticipating hyperinflation but they're early now all the reasons are valid but they're early and that what we have to have beforehand is a deflation and so um i'm going to explain some of the reasons why i think that but i want to it's start like a with- tsunami <laughs> the water, no like the water goes out first and everyone's out in the out in the the, the bay picking up seashells and taking selfies and yeah. Anyhow, go ahead, Charles. I interrupted. No, you're, no, you're actually, that's a very Apt good analogy. visual. Yeah, that's right. Um, so 
Uh, I want to pick up on Jesse's point about behavior, because that's really what all this economic financial stuff is. It's a reflection of human psychology, right? And since we're still running wetware 1.0, um, then we're going to keep repeating the same kind of psychological pattern of fear and greed and that kind of stuff. So what I'm seeing in the behavioral thing that I find interesting that I want your guys' feedback on is this um, mania of, of normal uh, people that were not interested in the market and don't claim any sophisticated understanding. It, it suggests to me, like, this is my only way out of serfdom. You know, in other words, if there's no legitimate way for me to get ahead, in, in the real economy anymore, you know, uh, I, I might be able to start a food truck or whatever, but that space is incredibly crowded. I might be able to get a PhD, but guess what? There's 40,000 other people that have a PhD just like mine and, and so on, you know? So it's like, well, then this is it. This is my only chance to get ahead in the system as it is, right? Cause I don't have any privilege or I don't have any inside track, then this is it. So that's one thing that I think is a driver uh, that people are ignoring. Can I just quickly interject? Yeah. I, I think the yeah. metaphor that you just evoked there, Charles, is the swarm or the mob. Because in each of the original examples, like the food truck or the Twitch streamer, right, <laughs> or, or whatever, like each of those, the individual is forced to compete against the group and the group is already there. It's already saturated. But in stock market investing and in cryptocurrency investing, it's okay if you're part of the pack, as long as you're in the pack that's going up, <laughs> right? So it's it was just an interesting contrast in your observation. Yeah, and then another behavioral thing when, about real estate and other things is people are, are, I think, adjusting their their views, whether subconsciously or consciously going, you know, if this thing does unravel as, as per Marx, you know, crack up, boom, hyperinflation, fiat uh, currency destruction, what am I going to do? What's my reaction now? And so the, um, of course, for some people, it's going to be saving, you know, and there's, let me, let me just get my hands on enough cash to have a cushion here to get through this. And for other people, it's, well, look at, I'm going to start buying some gold or I'm going to buy a bigger house because at least no matter what happens, at least I'll own this, this land and this house. And then I've got something right. As opposed to speculating in the financial markets, I might end up with nothing. Two things about deflation. What's different about the good old days and um, is that people used to invest or speculate with cash, like they, they, they saved money, right? Um, and then, so let's say you go in and you buy a stock for, you know, you put a thousand bucks in and, you know, oops, it fell in half, $500. Yeah, ouch. That $500 was actually real money and uh, th that you saved, right? Okay, so then that's now gone, right? Um, somebody else might have made the money if they bet against the market or whatever. But now compare borrowing money. Everything's borrowed. You know, that new pickup truck, $50,000 loan. Student, you know, your college degree, you know, at $50,000 or $100,000. Your house, $400,000, $500,000. When that money is lost, guess what? You still owe interest. <laughs> and so the losses are, are of a different kind. Because what happens is the lender has to take all of the losses, right? And and they, they can be extreme, you know, with margin accounts or a pickup truck that there's a $40,000 loan still outstanding, but the guy trashed it, it's only worth 10 grand. So the bank is going to get a vehicle worth 10,000 and it's, there's 40,000 due. And yeah, that's a $30,000 loss. Well, here's what's different. The bank created that money when it issued the $40,000 loan on the, on the truck. It didn't, it wasn't somebody's savings that money was created out of thin air, and that's how our money system works, right? Fractional reserve. And then when the, um, the, the, the bank repos the guy's pickup and realizes they're going to suck 30 grand in losses, that money disappears from the system. It, it, it goes to money heaven. <laughs> and so th that is a, a different thing because on the way down, because there's so much debt in the world, there's, and so many people are, are highly leveraged. When, when the debt bubbles pop, you get losses in the 90% range or, or something like that, right? It's like really catastrophic losses. And, and for the, the households and companies that have overborrowed, it's all like, well, sorry, you know, yeah, I ran up that credit card and I've got no money. So sorry, you know, the loss is basically 100%, right? And so um, what happens is when, the money supply shrinks as everyone goes BK, you know, bankrupt or writes, the banks have to write off all this money. 
that money disappears from the system and doesn't come back until somebody is credit worthy and willing to pay interest. And then the banks, meanwhile, are getting skittish, right? Because they're absorbing these tremendous losses. And it's all like, you know what? We're not in the mood to, to take a gamble on loaning to normal people. We're only going to loan to the super rich with massive collateral or something like that, right? So then that's how you get a deflationary crash. Nobody, everybody's skittish about lending and skittish about borrowing. And well, uh, since we live in a credit-based system, that's deflationary crash. And I appreciated your tsunami metaphor, right? The idea that the water has receded yeah. and everyone's run in because they're like, oh, look, there's more beach. Oh, look, there's a place for us to do sandcastles and whatnot. And so they all run into this very vulnerable position without realizing that they're about to be wiped out. And it struck me, Charles, that the brilliance of that analogy is it applies not just to the stock market, it applies to the pandemic, right? Because that's Texas right now, right? Where Texas has decided that they are gonna remove the mask mandate, that they're gonna open for business. And yet there are these highly infectious variants, highly volatile variants that are active in the United States that are currently devastating Brazil. And look, if Governor Abbott is right in his calculation, right, and that he's opening up at a time when it's safe to open up and the Texas economy will boom and, and Texas will be the beneficiary. But alternatively, if they're wrong and that this exacerbates a third wave of the pandemic, then that's the tsunami metaphor that you're talking about, Charles. And psychologically, it could not just impact the public health, it could impact the market the same way to Mark's point that we saw that initial plummet when the uh, coronavirus lockdowns first happened. You know, it, it there's this false hubris. There is this belief that everything will stay the same. Things will never get bad. That is, for me, the most dangerous and telling sign of the uh, irrational euphoria. The uh, What's that Greenspan phrase? Irrational yeah, exuberance. Irrational exuberance. Yes, yeah. for the irrational exuberance that we're currently seeing. But that was a fantastic breakdown of deflation, Charles. I, I am grateful to you for it. Oh, well, thank you. Well, I, and I have to credit Mark with the tsunami um, uh, metaphor. Although, to your point about the, uh, about the COVID, um, the, some Danish researchers uh, did, in fact, use the, the tsunami metaphor uh, for their fears of the variants um, getting uh, out of control. But, yeah, I, I love the whole idea that game stock is like the fish flopping around out there. You know, and, and look at the fortune is just right within grasp. Go out, run out there and get it. So, Mark, I'm curious, you know, I thought Charles's uh, metaphor when applied to the traditional monetary economy was was really self-explanatory. Does that also does that same metaphor that Charles was talking about, especially the the made up money in terms of interest and how that made up money can disappear and thus discourage the money lenders from you know participating? Does the same analogy fit in the crypto world? Or is because the crypto world has a kind of deflationary logic built in, you know, are we dealing with a completely different system when it comes to similar psychology in terms of the broader society or ecosystem? That's a great question. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to enjoy this. So the way Charles described it is exactly my understanding of what's called the fiat money system. So when you're using debt for money, you have this dynamic where the money supply must expand. If the money supply contracts, it's experienced as a, as a recession or a depression in extreme cases. And policymakers are hell-bent on preventing that from happening. Now, what Charles said, if uh, someone defaults on their debt, it shrinks the money supply. The big light bulb moment I had in understanding the fiat currency system, and I'll get to crypto in a minute, but this has to be understood, was when I read a book by Ferdinand Lips called Gold Wars, which tracks the history of monetary systems and why governments had to go off the gold standard in order to be able to print money to fight World War One, and it was supposed to be temporary, and they, may, they did try to come back on, but it never really stuck. Uh, I wrote a note in the back of that back cover of that book and i included it in one of my posts once that said under a fiat currency system 
basically a dollar can exist in multiple places at once. That's fractional reserve banking. So not only if somebody defaults on a debt, does it cascade throughout the system because all the other dollars that are sort of rehypothecated against it or whatever it is kind of disappear. If somebody pays back their debt, it has the same effect. All right. So people paying off their debts also reduces the money supply. And which, that's which just to quickly interrupt, that explains why banks have those penalties for paying off your mortgage early. Yes. Right. right? Because it's such a huge <laughs> amount of debt. They don't want you to come and pay it back all at once because that yeah. throws off their projected models and the way in which they're using and, and recirculating that debt. Yeah. Yeah. We can't have that. Right. Um, and so deflation is death when you're using debt for money. Now, why I fell in love with Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies is because uh, cryptocurrencies are an inelastic, non-debt based money. So a famous quote that I use a lot was John Kenneth Galbraith, who wrote in a short history of financial euphoria, something along the lines, I don't have it memorized exactly. He says, whenever a new form of money, like whenever something comes along that's celebrated as a new form of money, closer inspection reveals it to be ever higher leveraged debt instruments. So usually people come up with these weird debt derivatives and they call it, it's a new way of looking at money. And, and it just sort of adds to this dynamic. When I, when I discovered Bitcoin, I realized here we have a new economic asset that is not debt-based. This is not debt. And so in this case, deflation, the deflationary uh, characteristic of Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies has an opposite effect, especially on people who are saving money. So it's not that the pile of debt has to keep growing so that the economy doesn't shit itself. In this case, your savings, the money that you get off the table from performing goods or services or getting paid or, or running a business, it increases in purchasing power as, as the so, deflationary properties of it exert themselves or, or express themselves. Let me interrupt you and ask a question there, because this is sure. another area that I was I still remain confused. So I get that I get the argument there, but what's the implication of that argument? So if people who are saving, right, and, and I'm seeing this play out with the holdos, right? The HODL types, that yeah. if people are saving and their savings is at least psychologically always increasing in value, what incentive do they have to spend that? And to what extent because, are you disincentivizing people from spending? Because, you know, it's like a lost opportunity that if they spend it now, they're losing a future because if they held on to it, it would be more in the future. If if I'm phrasing that correctly, you, you have it right. And it's it's a known dynamic. But I think the the theoretical basis of it is this. Your cost of living goes down in cryptocurrency terms when you're holding cryptocurrency and even using it to spend because in fiat terms that value of the crypto may be going up but i look at that as the purchasing power of the fiat is going down okay so what happens is your cost of living is decreasing over time the more you save and when you spend your crypto you're spending smaller and smaller pieces of it so it's not that so you may be giving up People joke, you joked, you know, what happened to the Bitcoin I paid you for that Bitcoin summit? You said, I probably gave it back to you to renew my domain names, and then it became worth a ton of money to me. Okay, well, that was because the fiat in, in, in I guess, strictly hypothetical or, or theoretical terms was losing its purchasing power against the crypto. But the important part is this. I graph our cryptocurrency transactions from 2013 through to the present time. Okay, And what I see happening is an increase in transaction volume as the cryptocurrency uh, economy grows. I see a, a line that starts the average value of the crypto going down as crypto becomes more 
valuable, but the, the, the size of the transactions are getting smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. So like in 2013, you would, you would pay us 0.01 cryptos. Now you're paying us 0.00001 cryptos or Satoshis or whatever. And there's a book on this called Paper Money Collapse by either so, Schlichter or Pento, but sorry, go you're, ahead. You're, you're helping me understand this and I don't want, although I, it may be relevant, I don't want this salon to become, you know, us just learning the, us exploring yeah. the monetary and economic theory of, of Bitcoin. Um, but so are you, like the money that you are making off customers and in, in them paying those Bitcoins, are you doing anything with that? Like, are you using that for salaries? Are you using that for your R&D? Are you using that for business development in the sense that is all of this going into a, a new kind of savings for the company? Or is there, because what I was fast, what was interesting, what I found fascinating about your description was the correlation between fiat and crypto. And so I'm curious where in an organization that that relationship takes place in the sense that are you using those crypto revenues to finance operations or to finance expansion? Or is that in and of itself just savings? So we keep it on the balance sheet for the most part. And when the time is right, we may use it when we when we think that, you know, to be perfectly honest, okay, we top ticked it in 2017. It's kind of like, okay, this is getting a little crazy. We're gonna we're gonna convert this because we do not live in a fully crypto economy right. yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but for the most part, I mean, I'll take credit. We anticipated the trend. We're, we were doing since 2013 what MicroStrategy is making headlines for doing today. Yeah. And, and, um, and I've always said, I love crypto. I've never put a dime of my money into crypto. I've earned my crypto through yeah. business business ownership and just you take it in and you, the transaction volume is low enough. You put it in a pile over here and you, and you just keep it on your balance sheet as like a reserve asset. Yeah. Sorry, yeah, go ahead, but- Charles. Yeah, let me interject. Uh, let's just take a worst case scenario, which in the crypto world is, let's say somebody bought in at the top at $19,000 in 2017, right? And then they get disgusted, you know, not, six months later, it's like, I, I'm out, I, I'm done. So they sell it for 6000 Okay, they lost, right? They lost a lot of money. They lost basically two thirds of their money. The difference between the kind of uh, the debt-based money is, like I said, the person basically borrowed the $19,000 or some, even half of it on margin or whatever. Now they owe interest on that loss. Whereas with the Bitcoin, they did lose two thirds of their cash, but they had that, that was actually money, however we want to describe it, that they had in, in an account somewhere, whether it was in uh, bat guano futures or um, silver coinage or another crypto or I mean, some fiat. Like yeah. I, I'm willing to entertain the idea that there was less buying on margin, but the idea that there was no buying on margin, I'm sure that people did their best to, to, to bend the game, right, or yeah. to backdoor it so that they found leverage by which they could invest in crypto. But I, There's I a agree lot of with the general in crypto premise now. Yeah. yeah. There's a lot of margin in crypto now, but let's distill it down to the simplest thing: fiat currency, debt-based money is a treadmill economy, okay? You've got to keep making and spending and speculating to stay ahead of, a, of, a, of an inflation rate that's actually targeted by the policymakers. And people really don't understand so what I, inflation is. So, so I, I, I understand that part. It's the Bitcoin stuff that I don't understand. So, so why is Bitcoin with, not that? Instead of being on the treadmill... Okay, your savings are increasing in purchasing power over time. That's the main thing. Okay, but, you're incentivized to save. But that's not enough save. for me. Like when you say that's the main thing, like that's where you completely lose me in terms of the argument. And I say this because you're narrowing uh, an ecology, right? You're narrowing economic activity to one act saving. When obviously the economy is much more than saving. And there are many, many people of which I include myself. I do not save. I'm not interested in saving. I really hope I die today. You actually do save. 
if I don't die today, I really fucking hope I die tomorrow. And there's no way in hell that I'm going to put aside resources I have today for some future use. I'm going to use those resources today. Now, I, I hear what you're saying, and I do want you to make that argument. But from a psychological perspective, if I'm thinking about a monetary system, I am not interested in a monetary system that helps me save for tomorrow. I'm much more interested in sort of Charles's vision for an economic system that rewards and incentivizes labor and centers that labor in community so that you're reorienting society towards doing work that needs to be done in the communities that need it done. And that's part of why the climb system appeals to me. And I suspect, Mark, because you have a higher literacy than I do over not just Bitcoin, but monetary systems in general, that there are elements of this that are self-evident to you in terms of why this system is better. And that's what I'm trying to tease out, right? That's what I'm trying to get you to kind of elaborate. Sorry, Charles, why don't you jump okay, in briefly go ahead. before yeah. we turn over to Mark? Well, I think uh, you make an excellent point about the climb system and it's um, it's profound and it's not generally discussed, which is cryptocurrencies are the same as fiat currencies in one way. They are completely abstractions. They are not tied to anything real like labor or, uh, you know, a, a grain. Gold. or Yeah, or oil in the ground um, yeah. or tax revenues. I mean. So what I'm looking forward to, and this is where the network state comes in, is I'm, I'm looking forward to the development of cryptos that are no longer just abstractions, that they're connected to something in the real world. And I, and I, I think you summarized the main strength of the climb system there in that, that one, those two sentences, which is money should be connected to the real world and incentivize what we actually need as humans and as what the planet needs not just another abstraction which can be frankly purchased by rich people who got rich some other way <laughs> or that they can borrow more money than we can and that's the weakness of all cryptocurrencies is that the rich people can buy crypto and that's what's happening right now and a rich guy can start a crypto and then he can use his millions to promote it or a, a corporation like facebook can start a crypto and then push it through their monopoly you know all those things are destructive bad you know, so I, I'm looking forward to a crypto that's based, that's connected to something in the real world. Um, to that point, quickly, I will mention there are projects out there that do try to do that. There's a guy named uh, Nick Gogarty who wrote a book called The Nature of Value. And I know he was working on a like an alternative energy based coin, like solar coin or something like that. And And the guy who introduced me to him was working on a kind of like water, um, like he was trying to get he, he figured out that the state he was living in had this really inefficient way of using water. And if he tied it to like a cryptocurrency, it would work. But to, what I'm going back to is what you're hitting on, Jesse, when you're trying to tease out this difference is something actually that Charles talks about a lot. And it's the difference between money, currency, capital, and wealth, right? And they're not synonymous but people treat them as they are and so you say you're not saving but you are saving what you what you are actually doing is you're you're for you're forming capital capital formation and your capital mm -hmm. is pretty well agricultural resource you've got a farm and you're you're working your and farm knowledge. And, that, and knowledge so that's a different yeah. kind of capital but like so don't tell yourself you're not saving. You're but, saving but every I, I day. I guess if I could clarify, and, and maybe this you can help inform the difference, because I like how you broke down money, currency, wealth, and what was it, power? No, no, uh, capital. wealth. Capital, that's right. Capital. Yes. Money, currency, capital, wealth. Yes, and yeah. so to your point yeah. about me generating capital, right, I want all of that capital to be working for me. And that's why I asked you the question of whether – like the cryptocurrency that your business was accumulating, whether that was going to things like labor, whether that was going to things like R&D or operations. Because if I could, like everything I have, I want working. So my land, I want growing food for my animals who I want making food for, you know. So like every single piece of capital I have, knowledge, land, livestock, money, I want all of that active. 
I want none of that sort of saving in something that's passive. And maybe I'm being simplistic in the way in which I think of that versus your sort of understanding a more fluid approach. Because the other area that I'm maybe confused or ignorant is if I give my money to a bank, they're going to reuse that money and lend it to somebody else, right? And that's part of the way that interest is able to be created versus my Bitcoins are my Bitcoins, right? And they sit with me and, you know, they're not as if I'm turning around and letting someone else use them. Am I correct in noting that distance, difference? That's that's the difference in this sort of wave upward that's happening now, this this, this new sort of iteration of this how this all plays out is people actually there's a there's a lot of DeFi and bitcoin lending and staking and stuff like that so that's all starting to happen now so so i mean you have to remember this stuff is you know 12 years in it, old in it's its infancy in it, it's totally yeah. in its infancy but yeah. well the thing that the, the the point the major point is what's happened to the money like people a lot of people who are not immersed in economics and finance or investing. And I don't actually consider myself someone who is immersed in that. I'm just a guy out of necessity. I had to learn it all. But a lot of times people, their eyes glaze over when you talk about money and they think, oh, you're just, you know, you're just a greedy business pig who all you think about is money. But people don't understand that money is the control system of society, right? That however, whoever controls the money system controls society. And so there's such a difference. People don't understand what inflation really is, that it's really the government is, is, is it's theft. You know, the libertarians have a joke, taxation is theft, and, you know, you can all laugh about that. But what it really is, is inflation is theft. So when a government says our target inflation rate is 2% a year, it's like, we think we can steal 2% of your wealth a year from you before you really notice that that's what we're doing, right? And then maybe we'll let it run hot. That's official Fred, Fed policy right now. So, is we're going to let inflation run hot. L- let me briefly interject, Charles. I mean, what I'm hearing you saying, and, and I'm inclined to agree with you, right, is that the, the inflation, which is the way in which a government tips its own debt scales by printing money, Right. So that it can change its own debt obligations in correlation to everybody else. That proves we live in a network state because (laughs) nation states are no longer in a position to make those policies and have those impacts happen. Instead, they point to the global market and what they mean by the global market are bondholders. Right. Which are basically just corporations and other governments acting as corporations in terms of this large monetary system. So it used to be that national governments might be able to influence or control inflation in their jurisdictions, but they've lost that power. And if I believe the two of you, the best they can do is stop the bleeding. Right. And there's no way whatsoever for them to close the wound. And that speaks to how we've already gone into the network state. We just don't have the the language or the awareness to describe it. And Bitcoin just happens to be one of the emerging currencies or stores of value, because I think that is a different thing than a currency that we are starting to see as the infrastructure of this network state. Sorry, well, Charles, go ahead. No, no, no. I want to um, I think you raised a very important topic, uh, Jesse, which is what good <laughs> is a store of value, wealth, whatever, if it's sitting there. And and I think it's a very important point because the implicit understanding behind hoarding gold and Bitcoin, being a hodler of these stores of value is implicitly, no one wants to be the the person. And and we all know these stories. Many of them uh, are actually documented, right? Where some guy lived in like a rent controlled apartment in New York and then um, he's discovered to be worth millions, right? Because all he did was hoard every dime. Or in, in some people's cases, they bought they bought um, modern art, and they happen to have a really uh, prescient uh, view of who to buy. And so they or, have this. Or they just hung out with Andy Warhol at the right time. Yeah, yeah. In any ways, they they die having scrimped and saved, and then they they leave these fortunes in the millions or tens of millions. And so you go, well, wait a minute, is that the point of life? In other words is to be a hodler and then and then you die 
and then you have this huge you know pool of wealth no that's not the idea the implicit idea is i'm going to be like baron rothschild right i'm going to hoard and be a hodler of my gold and bitcoin and crypto and everything else and then when the rest of the world is in collapse and fiat collapse i'm going to go in and scoop everything in the real world up right like buy when there's blood on the streets now is this the kind of monetary system we want well, I don't it's it's I get it, right? But I don't think that's my ideal, not by any means, right? It, it should be democratized, it should be accessible. And so what we're really saying with with crypto as a store of value only is we're saying, well, here's another mechanism for you to be a hodler and a hoarder, and then you're gonna be um, there with all this wealth uh, store of value that you can then buy all the real world assets when the fiat currencies collapse. And hey, that's better than, then having everything you own go to zero, right? I mean, well, but and, it's it's hoarding is not the winner. It's it's capital should be put to use. That's your point, and I totally yeah, agree. Yeah, and then let me well, stitch together something the two of you both said very briefly, Mark. Which is, yeah. Mark, I think you were spot on when you sort of, and I'm paraphrasing here, described the you know inherent union between money and power. Right. That that money and power are two sides of the same coin. And I earlier this week, I gave this annual talk I gave at U of T and I talked about how universities are broken because they have political departments and economics departments when those two things should never be separate. Right. It should always be political economy departments because money and power are inseparable. Right. You have to look at how they dance together. And it's in the interest of money and power to have those things as distinct categories so that you don't recognize that money is always the exercise or the tool of the powerful. And so, Charles, to your point, it speaks to our vision for the future, that when we have money, when we use money, when we think about our monetary system, it is a futurist act. Right. It is an exercise in what we want our future to be or to your point about people who think it's all about to collapse. And that's why they're putting their money somewhere is because that's their projection of the future. Right. It's a, dis a dissidence vote. It's like this system is corrupt or this system is broken. I don't believe in it anymore. So I'm taking my money out of it as my own kind of lack of confidence or projection of the future. And, and I think that that's valid. And I think that we're moving into a type of competing systems that allows people to do that and allows people to put their money where their future is. And that's why I wish we had more climbs. That's why I wish we had more cryptocurrencies tied to real world ideas and real tangible things so that you could say, I believe in agriculture and I'm going to put my money like, you know, and this is for like someone in the city, they don't want to do what I did. They don't want to actually go and farm. So they say, I'm going to create the farm token, which I'm going to invest in agriculture and allow farmers to get access to this farm token and prove that they're using it for, say, regenerative ag agriculture, or agroecology that is more responsible. Like that, all of a sudden, we have viable competing monetary systems that will be the nail in the coffin of fiat currencies because there'll be a much more diverse ability for people to vote on their future or, or put the money uh, uh, in the future that they desire, if that makes any sense. Sorry, Mark. No, that's fine. That was good. Um, I want to just tweak one, one thing you said, Jesse, and then I want to lay out four data points that lay out over about 100 years, okay? You said money and power is inseparable or wealth and power having a stack of money is not really power. I mean, yes, you can, you can be powerful. It's being able to control the structure of the monetary system is where the power comes from. And it's the Cantillon effect. You've, you can all roll but, your eyes now. I, I rant about briefly, this all the time. Yeah. Just because you, you are the one who educated me about this. We are saying the same thing because right. if you have the money, it's because you are close to the money printing machine. The, correct. Period. Yes. So, and so what people tend to not really grasp is what happens when you detach what you're using for currency from some kind of immutable measure, right? That at least, because when you have that connection to an immutable measure, whether it's a gold standard or a blockchain or, or even just a government that has fiscal discipline, 
then you realize that life is a series of trade-offs. Every interaction is basically, is this worth more than what I'm getting? Is it like everything is a trade-off and you have, you face that constant reality that there is no ultimate systems is just life is a series of making educated guesses and trade-offs with imperfect information adds a whole different dynamic to life. But now we live in a world where it's like, oh, we'll just print up a bunch of money because we have MMT and we're going to solve racial inequality and climate change and, and, and everything and save the whales. Like it's, that's, that's the mentality now. But so. I, hold on. I think you made a leap there that I just want to push back on very briefly because I just argued and you agreed with that our monetary systems reflect our futures. So it makes sense that people would see money as a solution to the problems you cited. I think that's different than what you're describing, which is the belief that that money is infinite versus what I agree with you, which is everything comes with consequences. So well, every decision you make, you're using limited resources and therefore those resources are not going to be available for the next decision in contrast to what you're criticizing. And I agree with your criticism, the false belief that you can infinitely make up these resources, which neoliberalism kind of believes that is ludicrous and, and, and is not and grounded MMT, in reality. And MMT is the official canon of the central bankers now. And that's what they believe. But OK, the data points. OK. I, I'm just saying we don't need to use jargon if we want to have an audience that understands us. Okay. But otherwise, I get what you're saying. So in, I guess it was about 100 years ago, my mother's, my great grandfather, uh, my mother said when she was a child, she used to peek in the window at her grandfather. Have I ever told this story before? He was just sitting on the bed and he would, um, he would pour his, he had one bag of gold coins. He would pour it out on the bed and he would count them back in and he would pour it out on the bed and count it back in. And he was the grandfather who went off his rocker. Why did he go off his rocker? This was 1920s Germany and his business partner convinced him to trade in his golden Reichmarks for the new paper marks right before the Weimar inflation. And he got wiped out and he kept one bag of gold coins that he didn't cash in, and he spent the rest of his days counting and recounting his last bag of gold coins in and out of a bag. He and Mark, his... you are—you have still—you have inherited this family trauma, and you're still yes. processing it today. My mother told me that story many times when I was a kid, and I grew up saying that is not fucking happening to me. That is not happening, right? So my dad, okay, so 70 years later, whatever, my dad retires from General Electric, right? The unassailable company that just can't fail as goes. It, it was, they say it about General Motors, but the same was for General Electric. As goes General Electric, so goes the economy. He was just a shop floor guy, 30 years on the job, gets the pension, right? Retires. My mom, my dad live comfortably off of his pension for the rest of their days. And I look at that and I think they're the last generation that actually could do that, right? Nowadays, and when I was that age, I kind of did the math and I thought, if I can get a million dollars off the table when I grow up, I can stick it in the bank at 7% interest and I'll just make $70,000 a year. And that's like more money than God. Like it was well, inconceivable how I could, that was four times as much as my dad's salary that he was raising yeah. a family of four on. And I thought, okay, so I, I, I want to briefly push back and then Charles, by all means, jump in. All right. I mean, I, I, Never I got thought to my that last was... data point, but go ahead. Oh no. Okay. Then we'll come back to your <laughs> no, last no, no, data go point, ahead. Fin but I got to make a, a, an important point. Cause I think you're making a very powerful argument. Right. And, and you're making a powerful argument both for the kind of social safety net that allowed for that retirement to happen. Right. That allowed for a blue collar or even a not blue collar to have a job at a company and have long term stability like that is an important value we have as society lost. And I think it's important to get back. But I want to point out we never had it for long anyway. At That's best, true. That it was, was two generations, yeah. maybe one and a half. So it's a very tiny sliver of golden years in the horror that has been human civilization and tyranny. So I agree. It, it is something we can aspire to. But what I'm suggesting is, you know, uh, making it seem as if it was contrary to what your grandfather's experience, I think, is more likely. 
that people had amassed a certain amount of gold and some robber came and stole it from them. Whether state or brigand, you know, it makes no difference. That part of the story is recurring, I think, throughout history. So, sorry, what was your last data point? Well, just the point is that um, I kind of lost my train of thought, but now it's just, we don't, so my mom passed away in 2019. And I remember in her last couple of years, I'm like doing, looking at General Electric is like ready to go down the toilet. And I'm like, mom, how much of your pension income is from dad's old pension? She's like, you know, like, how are you going to be if GE goes down the tubes? And she's like, it won't be pretty, but I'll be all right. And it's like, okay, well, we'll figure out. But so it was almost like a race to the grave between my mom and General Electric. And uh, <laughs> as morbid as that sounds. Especially because um, you end up wanting your mom to win that race. <laughs> yeah, I know. And so, um, and then now today I think about, okay, like uh, if I got a million dollars off the table today and stuck it in the bank, I'd earn $300 a year in interest. And it would yeah. cost like 70 grand a year is not more money than God. That's pretty well like middle-class Toronto. Well, and to my earlier point about psychology, if you knew that you were going to get 70 grand a year, you were more likely to save it because you're like, okay, I'm going to get a return. But yeah. when you're not getting anything back, then you're more likely to put it in something ludicrous like digital art. Yeah. Or, you know, who, who right. Yeah. I mean, that that's why I'm, I'm fascinated by the psychological effects and the transformative effects, because a point I made at after last week's show that I, I should make again here is the idea that if you are playing the GameStop game and, you know, by chance, your fifty thousand dollar investment becomes a five hundred thousand dollar investment, that is a kind of trauma. Not bad trauma, as happened to your grandfather, in the sense that his trauma, you know, hurt him and, and devastated him. But it is a kind of trauma in that it creates a permanent imprint, an emotional, neurological imprint in your brain that changes your behavior forever. In the case of your granddad, it was regret, right? It was, you know, he, he, he uh, uh, you know, fetishize those gold coins as a symbol of his regret of, of lost wealth. But for GameStop people, it could be the opposite. It could be addiction, right? That it primes them to this opportunity. It primes them to this reward that comes from risk. Whether they ever get that reward again in their life is statistically unlikely. But the fact that they'd had that transformative event will change their life permanently and cause them to go after it. And that's what I worry about in terms of the volatility, not just of GameStop, but of these crypto markets and the ludicrous gains that people are going to keep chasing at the risk of increased volatility because they will tolerate greater losses. They will tolerate greater uncertainty because they're chasing that white horse, that lady on that white horse. They got to find her and, you know, she will never be captured. Well, you know, I made a note, Jesse, of your exact words because I thought they were quite profound. You said it in terms of it that being transformative. You, the phrase you used, as I uh, wrote down, was intense emotional experience. Yeah, that's the imprint, and um, I think you're absolutely right. And it, what it does is, it changes your risk um, perception. You know, and of course, this is when um, you get killed. <laughs> Uh, you know, that's when you get killed is your, your sense of risk is gets skewed by an intense emotional experience, like getting away with something, you know, that, that was dangerous. You go, well, I can handle this. I, I want to end my comments <clears throat> with, with two uh, points. One is that we touched on, Jesse mentioned it, and so did uh, Mark. You both touched on the idea that what we're really looking for here is a, a, a um, variety of money, like a diversity of money types where everybody has a choice. And that's the problem with fiat currencies is we're stuck with whatever we have. Right. And so cryptos has been the the, the revelation in my view was it gives us another um, kind of, of variability or variety. And I and I'm looking for more of that. In other words, when somebody does tie a crypto to something in the real world or to labor, then we're going to go like, wow, that's fantastic. I can get a crypto that's actually backed by farmland or by farm commodities or something. I'm going to buy that. 
you know, and and so the the variety, the variability, the diversity of choice is what we really want because that's what democratizes money. Is you know not just you know issued by a government or whatever. My last point is, I'm going to like refer to history here because money has a long history, and and if anybody wants to start uh, an investigation of money and wealth and all that kind of stuff, I would recommend one of the books being David Graeber's Debt: The First Five Thousand Years. That that explains a tremendous amount about uh, credit, debt, and money being all facets of the same thing. You know, in the historical realm, um, there's a big debate that's been ongoing for decades of what's called the Great um, uh, What's it called? The Great Divergence, which occurred in around the 15 and 1600s between the um, traditional wealthiest nations, which was China and India. And the most technologically advanced, and so on, and Europe, which was, um, you know, a laggard. <laughs> and then, well, how did Europe conquer the world? Why? What happened? And there's lots of explanations. Oh, Europe had the uh, scientific method, and you know, this and that. Well, to Jesse's point about hoarding, in my understanding, and I'm not, I, I, I can't say that there's some expert that I'm agreeing with. This is my own view that I've formed after reading a lot about history. Is the big difference was there were several, you know, cultural differences, but the big difference was the Europeans did not think of of gemstones and gold and silver that you put in a vault in your palace as wealth mm -hmm. for the, for the dynamic parts of the European economy, which was the Portuguese and the Dutch and eventually the English. It was like you used your capital and you borrowed money for a specific thing, not to consume but you borrowed money to buy a ship to send to you know Asia, and then you made the money back in trade, mm -hmm. and and then you paid the credit back. It was mm -hmm. it was the, the credit was a a tool for enterprise, and that's been lost. Now we use credit to consume and speculate. That's that's insane. That's only that's like why I wrote my blog post today. Said when will this travesty of a mockery of a sham implode is, is it once you're just borrowing tons of money into existence to fund your consumption you're doomed there's no way that's going to work but right? to your point charles it, it's a symptom unto itself it's a symptom of an empire in contraction right yeah. it's 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 not as if individuals are responsible for the empire's growth or that individuals are responsible for an empire's fall, but individuals sure as heck respond to those tides. And so that's why we're seeing the economic activity we're seeing because it happens to be part of an empire in decline. It, at least in contrast, say, to cryptocurrency, where you could argue you're seeing an empire in the rise. Right. And that's the sort of pattern of behavior that was reflected in the psychology. And it's reflected, you know, to Mark's point about the DeFi space and the way in which you are starting to see new kinds of innovation and new kinds of kind of uh, infrastructure or experimentation in terms of higher levels of abstraction. I remain skeptical of it because like you, Charles, I want to see both greater diversity in terms of different models of currency tied to tangible things i'm Im encouraged that it's all free and open source so that maybe these models will start to emerge maybe as farmers and farmer associations start to get hip to the game and they start realizing that this is a form of, of access to capital or of access to investment they will be incentivized to create these types of models uh but you know mark to your point i kind of feel that there needs to be more dissent or more diversity of opinion, diversity of perspective in the Bitcoin space. You know, I mean, I, I am, I'm starting to get off my snobbery of wanting to stay as far away from that world as possible. And I may, in, in my own MetaViews capacity, start wading into the kind of Bitcoin blockchain space if only to be a contrarian, if only to, you know, argue against what everyone else is saying. Um, but I'm saying this to you to encourage you because some of the stuff I hear from you is different than the stuff I hear from the Bitcoin people because you share the same critique of the fiat system, but you also have a critique of power and of consolidated centralized power that I'm not sure a lot of the Bitcoin proponents have because they're of the mind that many dictators have, which is all the other dictators suck, but I would do a pretty good job of it given the opportunity. 
I, I think the common theme that we talked about a lot today, but maybe didn't really come out and say it, is that we're talking about the the, the two different sides of the coin between a debt-based fiat money that's tied to nothing that's really being driven by financialization, right? So people are, they have more incentive to enter into the financialization uh, scheme or game than to actually do actual stuff versus capital formation and using capital to grow your capital. And you do that through savings because even your savings, if it's sitting in cash in the bank, old school, the banks are paying you interest because they're making loans against that. And so even your even your savings is going to work to help, you know, in the olden days, in the before times. Today, you know, with crypto, I say it's very early on and we're starting to see a little bit of that. I mean, I have this vision and I don't know how to articulate it, but like when I work up the spreadsheets for the audio books I do, like, you know, I do Charles's audio books and a few others and it's like, couple times a year, I got to sit down and plug in all the numbers into the spreadsheet. And I think about, wouldn't it be nice if the money just flowed into the spreadsheet, right, from the sales, and I'm entering these formulas and these numbers, and I don't, and, and, and it just goes straight out into a smart contract and sends Charles his cut. And then even beyond that, you would have this ability to be like, well, who wants to invest in Charles's next audio book? And people could just buy like tokens that correspond to royalty shares. And I just put together the spreadsheet and do what I do to make that book happen. And then it just kind of happens. And I think, I think we're headed in that direction. And I will say after our last episode, when we talked about decentralized um, uh, social media platforms, Adam Levine from Let's Talk Bitcoin, and he works at CoinDesk now, like emailed me. He said, oh, I got I to gotta show you something that you guys were talking about last week. So now maybe he'll see this episode and he'll email me again and say, Mark, I got to tell you what, where, where the crypto space is going. You're really going to like it. So uh, I, I, I'm, I am, I, I, I have, I don't have to be, I'm just very optimistic that this, we're still in the very early days of this crypto space and there's, there's a long way to go and it's going to be pretty empowering. And the, the vision you described in terms of that automatic spreadsheet or that hyper-connected spreadsheet, I mean, that appeals to me very much, uh, not just because of the ease of use, because I could imagine that sort of thing facilitating greater entrepreneurship and making it easier for people who don't have the kind of clerical skills, who are ideas people, to be active in the marketplace and be active in the economy. Similarly, the potential transparency there, right? Because those systems are available, it's easier for people to say, hey, look, here's this model, here's why you should invest in it, to your point of whether people would want to back sort of Charles's next audiobook. But the other sort of dynamic to this that I uh, am suspicious of or skeptical of, and I'll, we're out of time, so I'll flag this for our next episode, is, is what if the state does all that, right? What if the state is the power that is enabling that kind of uh, uh, automation? And this is, you know, I, I, I swim in government circles, and in government circles, they talk about this as, you know, government as API or government as application programming interface where the tax companies tapped into your accounting software, right? The, you know, Transport Canada, or the transportation regulator is tapped into your logistics. Like, you know, on the one hand, it has a great ease and appeal to us as users, but the paranoid guy in me instantly sees a potential surveillance system that yeah, if it's, this- it's sesame credit, China style social credit. Right, and so this is the topic that I'm, fi- although, you, you caught me, a, a, I, I'm, I'm, my OCD is like, I want to correct you. And yet at the same time, I want to agree with you. So yes, I'm going to be doing an issue uh, of MetaViews in the next week on China's uh, digital currency, which they have been making tremendous advances on. Uh, and yes, of course, on a geopolitical level, the danger is that because China will be able to develop this at a faster rate than any other government, that China will be able to export this technology to other governments. And this is my hypothesis of China being in a position 
to evolve from a nation state into a network state by providing the network infrastructure for other nations to literally become part of like a Chinese digital empire, right? Which, which is no longer based on nationhood. So let me just finish this one last thought. So my concern is that we here in the West are focusing on, you know, third party systems for lack of a better word, like Bitcoin and Ethereum and other independent systems when China is developing a state-based systems that I suspect even the government of Canada would choose to use rather than, uh, uh, you know, use something like Bitcoin or use something like Ethereum. That's my little paranoia as a, a, a flagging for a future discussion. But you wanted to quickly rebut before we wrap things up. No, just that you're not supposed to open a hideous can of worms in the last 60 seconds of the show. Dude, it's called a cliffhanger. It's how you hold the audience until the next show. You got to give them that little piece of, oh, this was such a good episode of Access and Easy. I'm going to hit the subscribe button. I'm going to open up my podcast app and make sure I get that next episode. I'm going to look up this of two minds guy and this MetaViews guy and this easy DNS guy because I want to know more of what they're saying. I mean, and I'm going to forward you, it. You got to do And that. I'm going to send it to my million Twitch followers, right? Yeah, that's, I mean, I've been thinking about that a lot. I mean, it, never mind uh, Bitcoin and Ethereum. It's like, there's a choice between China style social credit and Facebook or Google, right? So anyway, we're going to leave it there, everybody. Thanks for tuning in like us on uh what to say like us on bitcoin like us on uh youtube Send Stitcher, us your Spotify. <laughs> <laughs> check us out at accessofeasy.com we'll see you next time thanks <laughs>